this morning I'm excited to continue to look at the parables of Jesus as we're continuing to do. It's interesting for us, I think, to think why is so much of the Gospels, why is, is you know, what such a high percentage of the Gospels preserved for us in the form of parables? I think this is partly because Jesus used them a lot, but I think it's partly also because they were memorable, because they were controversial, because they were interesting. And because these parables that Jesus gave contain deep truths in sort of disarming ways, in sort of kind of in-through-the-back-door kinds of ways, right? To teach us, to teach his audience, who was used to the hearing of, of world stories and, and spoken traditions. As we noted last week, a parable is more than an illustration. The parables of Jesus are more like a house, As we engage in this parable, we move into this house. We explore its rooms. We begin to rest in it. We begin to dwell in it. And as we find a home in this house, then as we look out of it, we see the world in a different way. And our perspective has been changed. Jesus taught deep truths about the kingdom of God, particularly through the use of parables, as we saw last week and as we'll see Again today with another kingdom parable. It's in Matthew 18. Uh, Turn with me there, if you will. 695. I'm sorry. 695 is the page in the Pew Bibles. Um, There's a sermon outline, of course, as well in the bulletin to help us stay on track. Hear this parable starting in verse 23 of Matthew 18. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began to... uh, the settlement, a man, was, uh, was, uh, a man who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. The servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. The servant's master took pity on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. But when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And he grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, be patient with me and I will pay you back. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were greatly distressed And they went and told their master everything that had happened. Then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said. I canceled all of that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master turned him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all that he owed. This is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother from the heart. God's word for us. Let's pray. Father, indeed, as we come to this parable, we need your help to understand it and to apply it to our lives. Give us insight, give us understanding, and give us courage as we consider your words this morning. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Seeing, of course, as I mentioned last week, seeing the context of a parable is often really important as we interpret it. Some parables are kind of freestanding. They're, they're sort of contained in their own unit. But many of Jesus' parables are connected to what's going on around them, connecting to the events or the topics that are being discussed. 
and ours is today. Matthew 18, the whole chapter, is called uh, by some scholars the Ecclesiastical Discourse. All that means is that it's a chapter about the church, that it's Jesus' teaching about life in the kingdom, what we owe one another in the body of Christ, how we are to treat one another. The chapter starts with the primary place of humility. It talks about the seriousness of leading others, particularly children, into sin. Verses 8 and 9 talk about personal holiness and how important it is that God's people look different from those around them. Jesus reminds us that he's seeking to build his church to save the lost. Verses 15 to 20 are a famous passage about church discipline. And the Reformers in the uh, 1600s taught that church discipline was a mark of the church. That is one of the essential elements of the church. That without discipline, you weren't a church, was their contention. It's, of course, something very foreign to our culture today. But the idea is that if we truly care about people enough, if we truly seek to love them, then we seek to love them out of their sin then we're able to tell them the truth and that there's always a redemptive focus to reclaim the sinner from their folly and to lovingly call them to repentance. Church discipline done well recognizes we aren't playing church. It recognizes that judgment begins with the house of God, as 1 Peter 4 tells us, that God's people are called to a different standard in their lives. And yet, in this context of church discipline as well, there are these passages about forgiveness. I think there's an, there, that part of the thing that's going on here is the human tendency for church discipline to become witch hunts and cultish standards for behavior and conformity. We have to see a balance. We have to see that there is a vital and essential place of forgiveness in the body of Christ. In the church, some things we confront when we're sinned against and some things we forgive And some things we learn how to deal together with conflict in different ways using the wisdom that God has given us. Peter asks us a couple questions, and Peter asks a couple questions to Jesus, starting in verse 21. Then Peter came to Jesus and asked him, and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother when he sins against me? Up to seven times? And Jesus answered, I tell you not seven times, but seventy-seven times, or seventy times seven. The Greek is ambiguous, but the idea is that Jesus is saying that forgiveness in the body, particularly, is to be limitless, is to be extended again and again without counting, without keeping a record of wrongs. And, our, and it sets us up a bit for our parable this morning. Our parable is also about forgiveness, but it's not exactly teaching the same thing. Our parable isn't really about the limitlessness of forgiveness, but the necessity of it. Forgiveness is essential. It's not just measured in the quality, uh, quantity of times offered, but it's measured in the habitual quality of the people of God. It's an essential characteristic of us, as we'll see. And as well, in the context of the gospel, we recognize that this certainly isn't the first time that Jesus has taught us the necessity of forgiveness among the people of God. In the Lord's Prayer, of course, he teaches us to pray. Forgive us as we have forgiven others. Even more pointedly, in the following verses in Matthew's account, in Matthew 6, 14 and 15, Jesus says, For if you forgive men when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their sins, your Father will not forgive 
your sins. Is it indeed so straightforward? In other words, can I be saved if I refuse to forgive others? Can I be saved if I refuse to forgive others? I know of a story of bitterness. I'm sure that you do too. I know of many. The one that I think of is one that I pray is resolved now, something that happened 25, 30 years ago involving some relatives of mine. Blame was assigned and unforgiveness was pronounced strongly with a seeming hardness of heart. And as a child, I saw just a piece of this and it made an impression on me. People that I liked were stuck in what looked like bitterness. One party was unwaveringly upset with the other, was deeply offended. The other party may not have even known how much blame was assigned to them, may not have even known what this other person thought. But it was a pronouncement of, I'm not going to forgive. Could and has, I don't know, has one-sided, has this kind of one-sided forgiveness actually happened? Could time heal this wound? The details are irrelevant, of course, but the story is the same. Within the church, outside of the church, among believers, among unbelievers, um, within families, between families, conflict, bitterness, hurt feelings, sinful actions can lead us to a point of vows and promises of unforgiveness, of broken relationships that we say will stay broken unless, or maybe there's no unless, this relationship will always be broken because I will never forgive and cannot forgive that person and I never want to see or speak with them again. Sadly, this is not an uncommon story in churches, in families, in our world. This is the problem of our parable. I'll summarize it quickly. Jesus is saying that the kingdom of heaven is like, that the kingdom of heaven can be described by this parable. In fact, the nuance here really in the Greek is that Jesus is saying the kingdom of heaven has become like. So in Jesus, he's saying the kingdom of heaven has already arrived it is a present reality with me and your and this audience. I am extending this kind of forgiveness to sinners. And I'm calling them into this kingdom in this community of faith. The kingdom of heaven has become like this. Jesus is saying it's a present reality in his coming. The parable happens in three acts. The first act, we meet the king. He settles accounts with his servants These are sort of managers, account managers, uh, people who manage his wealth and property, probably. And moved by pity, by the begging of this servant who owes him this unbelievable amount, the king forgives his debt and sets him free. It's act one. In the second act, the servant goes out. He finds a servant of his, presumably even the same day, who owes him a much, much smaller but significant amount of money. However, servant number one is not moved by a similar expression of begging. He gives no mercy and throws servant number two into the prison. In scene three, the king is told of this. He calls servant number one, this unforgiving servant, into his presence. 
rebukes him, has him thrown into prison and tortured. Jesus summarizes then in verse 35. That's what's happening in these three scenes of the parable, the way that Jesus weaves it together. Uh, Again, as we look at parables, it's important for us to look at the characters. Who are they? What are they doing? What's normal about what they're doing? What's outrageous about what they're doing? And how is Jesus identifying them and us in the story? The first servant is something, again, like a property manager. Somehow he's accumulated a tremendous debt. Perhaps this is a sort of pyramid scheme kind of collapsing, right? This has snowballed out of control. He owes 10,000 talents. A talent, of course, is a measure of weight. It's used for gold, silver, and copper in the range of 60 to 90 pounds. By way of comparison, so the annual tax revenue and income of Herod the Great during his reign was about 900 talents a year. So the amount of money that King Herod needed to manage his empire and all of his wealth was about 900 talents. The servant owns 10,000. Depending on the metal used, of course, a talent would, could be as much as 6,000 denarii. A denarius, of course, is the day's wage for a day's work for a day laborer. So if we do the math, one commentator estimated that it would take about 164,000 years of work for the servant to repay this debt. Somewhere between 160 and 200,000 years for the servant to repay the debt. The servant is in a very bad spot. He does the only thing he can do. He begs. Verse 26. But the servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. You notice he doesn't beg for forgiveness. He doesn't beg for debt reduction. He doesn't beg for anything like that. He begs for time so that he can pay off the whole debt. He can pay off everything he vows to pay off. Then, of course, having his debt forgiven, we see a different side of this servant. He grabs, he begins to choke this other man who is indebted to him. He demands, pay back what you owe me. He's confronted by the same speech that he just gave. Verse 29, his fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, be patient with me and I will pay you back. You hear the same echoes? He's not moved. His response is opposite, diametrically opposed to the response that was given to him. He acts as though this, that he must have this money, forgetting, neglecting the fact that his own ledger sheet has been miraculously flipped on that very day. So from his words and his actions, of course, we see what's going on in the heart of character of servant number one. Servant number two is this incidental character. He's not a servant of the king. He's one underneath servant number one, right? So he's sort of on the lower rung of this ladder or pyramid scheme or whatever. He's in a position of needing mercy because he also has a debt that he can't pay. His debt is 100 denarii, a third of a year's wages, right? That's a significant amount, $20,000, $30,000, $40,000, whatever it would be to us. Not something that he can repay immediately, not something that it's easy to repay, right? And yet, it's about half a million times less than the debt, the first debt. We noted the speeches of the two are almost identical, right? He says, the servant number two says the same thing. Be patient with me and I'll pay you back. Our last character, of course, is the king. 
He represents God in the parable according to the summary statements in verse 35. Jesus makes it clear that this king is a picture of God. What's the king like? Well, we should note from the beginning that he's disposed towards generosity. When he's confronted with this great debt, his decision to sell the servant and his family and his children and all of his stuff was not a ruthless or vindictive choice. It was a very common practice of debt slavery in the ancient world, very different, very different from slavery in uh, the West in the 16th to 18th centuries. There were many provisions in the law of Moses regarding the proper treatment of slaves, how they could regain their freedom, how they could have the... There was the year of Jubilee where every uh, seven years slaves were set free, how their rights would be maintained. All of this was contained within the law. So there was, there was a common economic practice of the day. So from the start, the king is not being cruel. He's just trying to recoup some of his loss. But then we go and we see what he does next, right? This is, this is crazy. With no restitution at all, with no replayment plan at all, he forgives the debt. This is terrible business practice. If you're a business owner, don't, you won't last long if you do this, right? What happens if the other servants find out that it's rack up a huge debt and get forgiven time? This is the king that I want to work for, right? This is chaos. No human king could absorb those kind of losses. This is where Jesus is, of course, using otherworldly details to tell us what's going on. Why does the king do this? There's only one reason given, because he took pity on him. This is the same word that's often translated to have compassion. It's used uh, in the Good Samaritan parable. It's used in the prodigal son parable. It's a rich Greek word. It means to be moved in one's inner being. Right? It's a word of empathy, a word of feeling deeply what another person feels and then acting towards them with a kind of compassion. The word isn't used much in the New Testament. It's just you know, a handful of times. But it's a rich word. One commentator said this is one of the most, one of the four most uh, critical things that Jesus taught was this picture of this kind of compassion. Jesus is usually the one who has it. Of the five times the word occurs in Matthew, four of them, it says Jesus had this kind of compassion. The king is moved by the plight of his servant. His ears are open to this begging, and he acts magnanimously and generously. We see the great kindness of God on display in the story, don't we? As many people saw it, acted out in the life of Jesus and his earthly ministry to them. As clear as it is, then, that this king represents God, some Christians, some commentators have really struggled with making this clear identification. Why? Well, it's because of what happens at the end of the parable. As much as we see God overflowing with mercy on the flip side, we see him angry and full of wrath. Verse 34. In anger, the master turned him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all that he owed. Boundless compassion turns into terrifying wrath in an instant. What of continuing cries for mercy? What of the torture of the jailers and the impossibility to be repaid? Again, not every detail in a parable has to have an exact parallel in reality, but this, but this raises questions, doesn't it? It's a picture of hell. 
the, the language is very clear. In the New Testament, this is a picture of hell, of, of eternal punishment, eternal separation from God that this king makes happen. That, of course, is a difficult thing for us to comprehend, something that doesn't belong on our shoulders. The question of eternal destinies is too much for the sermon this morning, but it's here. The God is, this master, this king is magnanimously generous, and this king is just and full of wrath. And this king holds these things together in his person perfectly. And of course, we can't get our heads around it. But it would be right for us to consider the question in a different way as well. Should the king have done nothing when receiving this report from these servants about what his servant had done? Should he have allowed his servant that was forgiven this enormous debt to go out and punish the other based on all that had happened? If we turn it around a little, it's something for us to think about. The second question that's raised in the parable that we need to kind of deal with is, it seems that the king removes his forgiveness once it had already been extended. What do we make of that? Well, I don't think this is a detail within the parable that we can press further. The Bible clearly teaches in many other places that God's forgiveness is, is, it can't be lost, can't be removed by any human action. So what we see in the parable, in the character of the unforgiving servant, is one who seemed to never have grasped the forgiveness of God at all. The grace of God extended to him seemed to have had no impact on his heart. And so we would be right to conclude then again from the bigger perspective of the Bible and the teaching as a whole that the unforgiving servant was never really a believer and that in a sense his, his debts had never been forgiven. There's more that we could say about that, but again, it's one of these details in a parable that we can't press and bend our systematic theology around. It's one that we have to let the rest of the Bible uh, let that detail go and say that it's not important in terms of where it's not critical in terms of understanding uh, what the Bible teaches about could someone lose their salvation. So what is Jesus trying to teach us? How does this story show us what the kingdom of heaven is like? How does the world change when we step into this house? Well, first, clearly we identify that the debt in the parable is the debt of human sin. Debt is another word in Matthew for sin, in the Lord's Prayer and elsewhere. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. One of the theological points that's shouting out to us in this parable is that human sin creates an unparalleled debt before God. Everyone who has ever lived except for Jesus owes 10,000 talents to God. We're all guilty. We're all culpable. We have all rebelled against him. We have all wished his law away. All of us have not been grateful for every breath, every gift, everything in our very existence. We have all wanted to make ourselves the center of the universe and find autonomy. We have all believed the serpent's lie, you will be like God. And that's our dream. In every way, the parable is showing us that we share the predicament of the servant that there's no way to pay this debt off, that we're helpless before it. And so we come after God calls us to beg for mercy, and amazingly enough, we find it. 
This king is full of compassion. He's unlimited in his ability to take on the debts of the human race and to place them upon his son. The debts of the world provided for, taken away, and placed upon the son. It's one of our theological points here. So what's wrong with the first servant's speech? He doesn't ask for mercy. He asks for time to repay. And theoretically, he knows the size of the debt, and he asks for time to repay. Believing in the necessity of God's mercy and grace comes with difficulty for everyone because self-made religion always puts us, gives us the ability to repay. Meditate enough, sacrifice enough, pilgrimage enough, work enough, whatever enough, and you'll make it. God will have to accept you. The lie is that we just need more time, we just need more education, we just need more devotion, we need more self-help books, we need more whatever in order to make it. Friends, we can't move forward in our Christian lives unless we get this first step, that all is grace and mercy, that nothing of my salvation is my own doing. Nothing of your salvation is your own doing. And this isn't bad news, this is the best possible news. I have a savior, I have an advocate, I have a perfect older brother. By faith, I have one who has done it all and his record has been credited to me. The grace of God offends us and calls us to a complete dependence on this one. And so one action point coming out of this sermon is the necessity that we see our sin, that we own it that we know that we can't save ourselves, that we must receive the grace of God from outside of us. That's the only hope for our debt to be forgiven. There's no solution other than what Jesus offers. That clearly has to be the first point of this parable to us. There's a cluster, of course, of other theological points about it. What is the debt of, what about the debt of the second servant? There's this idea that debts are owed to other humans and that they can be quite significant because we sin against each other all the time in a broken world. The footnote in your NIV Pew Bible says, calls the other debt, the hundred denarii debt, a few dollars. But as I mentioned already, it's really more than that. Humans have invented all measure of sinning against one another. And some of you, of course, have been deeply wounded by others, deeply hurt, deeply scarred both by others in the church and by those without. Within our body, among us, there are terrible things that other people have done to us. And those things are not just a few dollars. Those are significant debts, significant hurts that we lament. Part of the teaching, of course, is that the, compared to the debt that we owe to God, these are small debts. But I don't think that the parable is trying to minimize those debts. I think it's trying to tell us that we're also debtors, right? That we're both victim and we're perpetrator. That we're both sinner against and sinned against. That we're both sides of the transaction. And that God is the one who sinned against in every case. No matter which direction the sin goes, first and foremost, the sin is against God. 
And so the second action point I would put before you to consider this morning is, what do I owe and what am I owed by others? The king's judgment goes like this in verse 33. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? Our translation even obscures the force of the original text. In the Greek, it's this idea that such mercy was necessary. It is necessary that you have mercy on your fellow servant just as I had mercy on you. The king is saying that this kind of mercy is not optional. And the actions of the unforgiving servant are terrible because he doesn't admit the necessity of showing grace and mercy, and he doesn't realize that it's a great failure not to do it. It's a necessity. It's necessary that God's people reflect God's character in the kingdom of heaven, particularly in this regard in the parable. So what's easy for us to see in the parable, what an unbelievable jerk that servant was, is hard for us to internalize when we have been deeply wronged and when we struggle to forgive others, both within and outside of the church. Of course, we could tell stories of families racked by conflict and unforgiveness. We know of churches that are all bent out of shape because of long-standing factions within the body. And honestly, the evangelical church is not known, partly because people misunderstand us, but partly because we struggle to be gracious and biblically forgiving towards one another. I saw a bumper sticker one time that said, Jesus, save me from your followers. Can I be saved if I won't forgive others? I can't answer that question except to look at this passage and be moved by the compassion of God and be confronted by the necessity to forgive anyone who has wronged me. And this parable is an intensely forceful presentation of how believers must live. This is life in the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is like this. This is what makes God's kingdom different from Satan's kingdom. And that doesn't mean forgiveness is easy. I'm not saying that. The parable isn't saying that. Jesus knows that it's not easy. And Jesus knows that we don't just fake our way through it. And Jesus knows that we struggle to forgive. But the parable does teach us. It pushes us. It says that forgiveness is not optional. That unforgiveness is a denial of the gospel. And indicates that we, if we are stuck, if we can't forgive, if we say, I will never forgive, that means we have missed what the gospel is teaching us. We don't really understand what God has done for us in Christ. And like anything in the Christian life, of course it's not easy. And God doesn't leave you alone to sort out how to forgive. He promises that he will help you. He promises that he will help us always as we pray. As we, and, and we know that these things don't happen in a day. But we know And it's my calling as a pastor. When we come across this kind of passage and we present it, we have to say, eternal destinies are at stake. 
That's the, uh, there's no other way to read this passage. Hell and heaven are at stake in this understanding of forgiveness and extending it and receiving it and extending it to others. Jesus makes it plain for us. It's not optional. It's necessary. And we ask God to help us become people who receive and who extend the grace and the mercy of Christ. The kingdom of heaven has become like this. And we praise the Lord for that. And we ask for his help. Amen. Please pray with me. Father, we know what it is to hurt and to be hurt. And Lord, we pray that you would help us to forgive as we've been forgiven. Help us to see clearly how much you have done for us and what, you have, what amazing lengths that you have gone through to pay the debt that we couldn't pay. Father, we need your help with this in, in all things. Speak to us through your word. Continue to speak to us this week. Help us to have the courage to do the right thing as your spirit convicts us and enables us. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.